Welcome to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, a bi-weekly look at all things related to the growing elite clubs nationally, the ECNL. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.theecnl.com. Now, here's your host for Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, former U.S. soccer press officer and longtime soccer broadcaster, Dean Linky. I am Dean Linky, and we have two special guests driving this week's show. This is Christian Labors, president and CEO of the ECNL. And this is Kerry Bowley, technical advisor to the ECNL. Don't miss this week's edition of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, as Kerry talks about the ECNL methodology workshops. His work on promoting methodology development, club philosophy, coach development, and learning environments. Christian, it's great to be on this edition of Breaking the Line, and I'm proud of the steps we have made in the past 10 months and look forward to a promising future with ECNL. That's right, Christian Lavers and Kerry Boley on this week's edition of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. And it starts after this message from the ECNL. As the game continues to evolve in the United States, the ECNL remains the standard of excellence in youth soccer. The Elite Clubs National League has grown to include over 200 clubs and nearly 50,000 players across the country with a robust competition platform for teams, educational resources for coaches and clubs, and unparalleled identification and development opportunities for players. Alongside its member clubs, collaborating to create a better future, the ECNL continues to raise the game every day. The ECNL is more than a league. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Once again, here's Dean. I am Dean Linky, proud to host Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, and pleased to be joined on this edition by one of the founders of the ECNL, the longtime president and CEO of the ECNL, Christian Labors. I want to welcome Christian and thank him for driving today's show with the ECNL's technical advisor, Carrie Boley. And Christian, before we welcome in Mr. Boley, just a quick soundbite from you on what it meant to add a technical advisor to the ECNL leadership team and what the job entails. Yeah, well, I appreciate it, Dean. As always, enjoy being on here with you and really excited to have this conversation with Carrie. Carrie and I met, I think it was probably around 2017 or so. I think we we're in our second ECNL symposium sometime around then. And we were looking for presenters and a mutual friend, Ian Barker, had suggested I reach out to him. And at the time he was with the city football group and he can tell you more about that role, but he came out to one of our symposiums, gave a couple of really interesting presentations. And as we got to know each other, his role in supporting coach development and methodology development across a variety of different clubs and different places with different cultures and other variables, I thought was really interesting and could translate in being able to help us as a league in trying to drive improvement in the league through the clubs that are a part of what we do and who drive the development of players. He was gracious enough to be willing to take on a role as a advisor to us about a year ago, a little less than a year ago. We've been happy with the workshops we've done and some of the ideas for the future. 
Great setup. And with that, Kerry Boley was announced as the league's new technical advisor back in January. And I actually had the great honor of sitting down with Kerry back in January at the ECNL Coaches Symposium in AGM and Las Vegas. And he was brilliant. Before we welcome him in, let me tell you a little bit more about him. Most recently, Kerry worked as a first-team assistant for Rangers FC in the Scottish Premier League and UEFA Champions League. Prior to that, he worked for many years for City Football Group, where he led the creation and implementation of the City Football Methodology, which remains in place at CFG clubs across the globe. Bowley holds a PhD in sports psychology and coaching science and has worked with Barrytown, the English FA, Swansea City, and Methertown in various roles. Adding to what Christian said, as ECNL technical advisor, Kerry is helping create and implement a variety of club and coach development projects to help further raise the standards and quality of the coaching and play within the ECNL. These projects include seminars, workshops, and courses related to the development of club methodology, creation and execution of talent development plans, creating a psychologically informed training environment and club and organizational development. A big list, but one that Kerry can handle. So let's say hello to Kerry Bowley. Welcome, Kerry. Great to have you back on Breaking the Line. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Dean. Great to be with the two of you, sharing some more information, hopefully, that's uh, useful to all our listeners. Well, before I turn it back to Christian to kind of drive the conversation, nine to 10 months into the role as technical advisor to the ECNL, how are things going for you, sir? Yeah, it's been it's been a great. It's gone quicker, which is always a good sign. If if things go quickly, then it's always uh, always a great sign, I think. But yeah, the f- the first kind of ten months has been really good, productive uh, continuation, I guess, in many ways, in terms of the relationship with Christian, which is kind of a natural thing for me now, in terms of how we continue to stay connected and for, um, for and good. Right for good, yeah, right. for good, for good, mate, for good, always for good. But um, yeah, it's it's a it's a kind of natural continuation of conversation around various things, really around talent development. So yeah, we we chew the fat on quite a lot of things, um, and then with with the league more specifically, obviously the second symposium that I was at in January, where where we met, Dean, and then we've had some workshops since then, and and some more kind of sporadic contact with people that reach out coaches from the league that reach out and just offer some individual advice to any questions of, that they have. So uh, it's been good. It's been good. Awesome. And I was honored that you uh, reached out to me to kind of keep in touch after the interview. That meant a lot to me. And with that, I'll turn it back over to Christian. Looking forward to this time on Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Appreciate it, Dean. So Kerry, you came in and did a presentation at our symposium in January. The biggest thing you've done in the last couple of months is our methodology workshops or methodology masterclass, which we did one in Charlotte in May, I believe, and then one in last week. So maybe give people just a, if you had to give the elevator speech or the two minutes on what goes on in that methodology workshop, I think it'd be helpful. Okay. Yeah. So I think most will be familiar with philosophy. It's the natural thing that we think about in terms of style of play and how our teams play and what our beliefs are on the game. But actually, the bit that often goes missing is how do we get there? So what do we see as as the kind of preferred way that we want our teams to play and how we want them to look? And then the methodology are all the things that kind of encompass that, if you like. What are the different steps? What are, what are all the different variables that we have to consider in order to get to the end point of having a way of, of doing things, an identity on the pitch, um, and a way of helping players learn and develop? So in, in kind of an overview of the, of the key things we look at is what is it about the club? What's the identity of the club? What does that look like? What does it mean because of the area that geographically that you are um, and some of the values and, and kind of traditions around the area? Uh, then we consider each coach as an individual 
because that's important. We are to let coaches be themselves um, and not create robots. So we consider that. And then really it's about players. So, you know, how do we develop good people, which is really fundamental um, as the future of society, as well as then developing good players. So the two of those going hand in hand. Then we get into what do we want the game style to actually look at, study some of the some of the clubs around Europe and, and around the world in terms of what different game styles are um, and what's best suited really to what we are as a club and, and what it is that we're trying to achieve. And then how do we bring it to life, which is always the, the most interesting bit and always the most exciting bit, but the part that is probably most difficult to do for sure, the most frustrating on times to implement, but having a clear idea of how we do that and how it goes from being a piece of paper or a PowerPoint slide to actually being something that happens in training and games, which is which is the most important part of, of coaching, educating and teaching. So um, that's the kind of overview of where we what we try to achieve. It certainly is a lot. It's a full two days. Sneak peek is we're going to be announcing another of these methodology workshops in St. Louis in December, which we'll give the details on at the end of this call. It is an information-packed couple of days with also a lot of emphasis on collaborative discussion. And it's not just Kerry standing in the front of the room dictating. One of the things I think that you've said, and there's a few things in these workshops, because I've been to both of them, that have come through as I think discussion points that might be interesting. And the first one is you start every one of these saying that there is not the way to do anything. There are a multitude of different ways, as long as there's alignment in principle, philosophy, and style. So can you talk a little bit about that? Not the way, but a variety of ways thought? Yeah, I think, well, to start with, the reason why the game is so interesting to so many and fascinates so many is because it's something that everyone has an opinion on. Everyone has an opinion on soccer, what it looks like and how it should be played. Um, and what we try to do is uh, embrace that as much as possible and, and appreciate that, you know, there are multitudes of ways depending on where you are, uh, what your education might have looked like as a coach um, and what you believe in and what you like to see in terms of the way your players um, take to the field and play. So, so I think it's always important to allow people to be themselves it's always important for it to become almost organic in terms of the development and we're there to kind of support and facilitate it. But actually, there isn't one way of getting success in anything. There are lots of different ways to be able to achieve success. And the key thing for us is to uh, acknowledge that and try and work with it and help people regardless of what they believe in. Um, we can we can create identity and alignment through a club no matter what what it looks like and, and the approaches to get there. So so I think that that's important uh, because it'd be a boring game and a boring world if we all did the same thing um, constantly. And um, one thing that wouldn't we wouldn't achieve is this knowledge transfer and continuation of kind of evolving practice if we all just did the same thing. So it's it's about embracing that. It's about encouraging people to be themselves, um, original and authentic in terms of what we develop, uh, and then hopefully what what. Uh, people always say it's contrasting styles is what brings entertainment, right? When t people do things differently and challenge each other's ways of being different, that's what brings the real entertainment on the pitch rather than, as I say, sitting in the same shape, doing the same thing, trying to achieve the same patterns. It's, 
that becomes quite boring and monotonous. So, Kerry, the word that I like the most out of Christian's question there was collaboration. I think the ECNL takes a lot of pride in hearing from their clubs and the leaders of their clubs. They don't just stand up on a white ivory tower and say, this is how it's going to be done. How refreshing has that been for you to work in that environment? Yeah, for sure. It's 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 hugely important. And I, as part of the workshop, we talk about collaboration being more than teamwork collaboration being around being able to generate ideas as opposed to teamwork being this is the idea that we're going to move towards and everyone does does what their part in terms of the contribution towards achieving that goal so collaboration being in its pure kind of uh, authentic state in terms of everyone giving their ideas to generating an agreed target or an agreed goal in terms of what we're going to try to work to and then contributing afterwards so really important and and again what what i say at the beginning really is that I have a preference. I have some ideas around how we can do this, but actually there's far more knowledge sat looking at me or stood looking at me, depending on what we're doing at that moment in time, than what there is looking the other way. Because when when you get a collection of coaches, 20-odd plus coaches together, there's far more experiences in the room, both kind of similar experiences, but also contrasting experiences than what there's ever going to be with one person leading and facilitating a workshop. So so that's been hugely important. I think we've generated some really rich discussions between um, the candidates and the coaches that have been there. So, you know, it's a huge thank you to them because these workshops are as useful, as productive um, and effective as the people that are in the room willing to contribute and have the discussion so so that's been that's been great it's helped me understand the clubs far better some of their unique challenges some of their similarities in terms of challenges and successes those things have been really useful and i think certainly helped them in terms of understanding each other's environments and then each other's challenges and also creating some solutions and sharing good practice that they can then go and take back to their club environment and try. So one of the things that may surprise people in these workshops are you start first with philosophy. And I think there's a lot of talk now in this country about methodology and what that is. But I think a lot of times it it sort of hangs out on its own because it's not linked to a bigger, more important vision. So can you talk a little bit about why you start with philosophy as the opening part of the workshop? First is because you kind of start with the ending insight that's one thing so what what do you want to see in the end and then how do you build up towards it but often it's the easiest thing to recognize because it's it's the thing that becomes visible right in terms of we watch a team play you get a sense of what the philosophy looks like um, and what it is so i think once you create that picture in people's minds it often becomes a lot easier to then break it down to build it back up again Um, so similar you know coaches will be familiar with the whole part whole method And I suppose in some ways it mirrors that in terms of what's the whole thing in terms of what it is that we see, want to see, then the sum of its parts. So each individual individual part and how that kind of contributes and then bring it back to in the end, what what is it that we end up with? So I think it's that more than anything that allows them to draw from their experiences of watching the game, from playing the game, from coaching the game, and then take them into individual concepts and then bring it back again to uh, what it is that they were were hoping to achieve. So that's from the club perspective, which is most visible in the way the team is playing. But you also talk a lot about the coaching philosophy. And I think one of the the comments you make is less than 10% of coaches actually have a written coaching philosophy down. So can you talk about the difference between 
a club philosophy and a coaching philosophy? Club philosophy is more around what, what is it that we agree? What, what's the alignment, if you like, in terms of what we agree we want our teams to look like and what our approach is going to be to play in the game? And then in terms of the coach philosophy, of course, it has to align somewhere so that the, you create this alignment and identity through all the coaches. But actually, it's also important to draw upon all the experiences of each individual that you have as part of your club for similar reasons to, to what I said to, with uh, Dean around collaboration, really, that you draw upon as many experiences and, um, and as many views of the world as possible. So I think that that's really important, that we, we allow people and we embrace the fact that there are you know, 20 plus, 30 plus coaches in our, in our um, club that bring slight differences and nuances in the way that they see it and the way they have lived experiences that come from beyond soccer. So it's not just about our soccer experiences, but about everything else in terms of what we believe in around young people um, and creating environments and, and effective teaching and youth development. But then when it comes to the bit around being written down, it's being purposeful. So many coaches will go through their whole career and never really know why they do what they do. They just know what they do. Um, and I think it's really important to give thought to why is it that I do it in this way? What has my previous experience taught me about why I need to alter and, and change tact a little bit in terms of my approach? Um, why do I work with this one player in a certain way, which might be different to another player? Um, I think it's quite easy. Otherwise, we just kind of sleepwalk through 10 years worth of, of coaching and, and still do the same things as we've done in, in year 10 as what we did in year one, which which obviously... Uh, doesn't doesn't bring the the kind of effectiveness of teaching and learning that we that we really want in terms of youth environment. So so I think it's that it challenges you to think about why you do it, and then as a result of it, you have to commit something. And if you commit something to paper, what we know is that it acts as a reference point. But as soon as we commit to it, um, it means that we have to go through and, and actually live those behaviours and actualize it. So it helps in that way as well. Bring it bring it into focus as often as possible. Well done. And time for our first break as ECNL CEO and President Christian Lavers visits with the ECNL Technical Advisor, Carrie Bowley. When we return, Christian switches the discussion to coach development and player impact on Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Nike is a proud sponsor of ECNL Girls. Nothing can stop what we can do together to bring positive change to our communities. You can't stop sport because hashtag you can't stop our voices. Follow Nike on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Soccer.com is proud to partner with the ECNL to support the continued development of soccer in the U.S. at the highest levels. We've been delivering quality soccer equipment and apparel to players, fans, and coaches since 1984. Living and breathing the beautiful game ourselves, our goal at Soccer.com is to inspire you to play better, cheer louder, and have more fun. Visit Soccer.com today to check out our unmatched selection of gear, expert advice, and stories of greatness at every level of the game. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Dean Linky, so pleased to be joined by Christian Labors and the technical advisor for the ECNL about nine months into the job, Carrie Bowley. I turn it back over to the ECNL CEO and president, Christian Labors. So to kind of pivot on that question of balancing the coaching philosophy and the club philosophy, how do you support giving coaches the autonomy and opportunity to develop as individual coaches? within the context of 
we need to see a consistency over time and age groups within a club? Yeah, so it's a great question and, and often the most difficult thing in coach development because the easy thing, I guess, would be to give everyone the same session to deliver so that it looks the same. And as a result of that, practice becomes modified around the kind of uh, coaching practice that is around the session that you're going to deliver. But actually, when we come back to embracing what each person is and their experiences and how they, they see it, um, I think it's detrimental to go practice-led kind of sessions, if you like. So in in terms of a start point, we always use the principles. Can I pause on that, Kerry? Because I think what you just said is really interesting. Your comment was it's detrimental if you go from a practice-led approach, which is basically giving every coach, here's the practices you're going to run, that that is detrimental to coach development. Is that a correct for, way? For sure. Understand? Okay. Yeah, for sure. So and and the re- and the reasons for that is because when we I've already said we want original coaches coaches that can think bring their own experiences to the fore and the most important thing for me in terms of practice design is what do the players need so we it's it's hard to come with a preconceived idea we're going to run this practice because that's what we want to run well actually is that what your players need because that that should be the start point of everything that that we uh, give thought to in the design of any practice and session is. What is it that my players need and how do I need to deliver what they need, essentially? So so that becomes our kind of start point. But to your second part in terms of the principles, because of needing to have some sort of alignment, then we work to a model of principles. Identify in possession, out of possession, in transition, attacking and defending. What are the key things that we need to master in order to help our players learn? As the workshop continues and it gradually gets more and more specific to the field and to the player from these sort of big overarching perspectives. But one of the things that you say that I think is is really important and you're very clearly passionate about is you talk about the percentage of players that ultimately will move on to professional soccer in terms of success, but the opportunity for 100% of players to have a positive experience from the, the sport and the club. So can you elaborate on that piece of it when we start talking about philosophy and impact? What we know is that the opportunities for those to go and play at the top level are limited because there are only so many spots on a roster and there are so many only so many leagues in the world that they can go. But what we know is that millions of kids fall in love with the game, play the game, maybe want to continue some sort of association with the game over a long period of time. And so what we have a duty of care is to do more than just develop footballers or soccer players. What we need to be able to do is is help develop young people that can thrive in society and have thriving careers, whatever that looks like in the future, whatever path they go down. Our duty of care is to develop good people. And what we know about, the, about sport in general and, and specifically soccer is that it's a, a unique vehicle in many ways because of the relationship that you kind of develop with the young players, uh, the way that they look upon the role of the coach and, and that relationship with them and the influence that we have. We have a unique opportunity to develop them in ways that they don't even consider, I guess, that that the, the game and, and coming to sessions will, will do for them. And that's where we talk about how do we develop life skills. Those things are going to help them not only in the environment that they're in now, in the youth soccer environment, but beyond that, in terms of the impact that it can have on their school, their wider kind of life in terms of at home, in their community and whatever else. But importantly, whatever they go on to be, because as I say, we've got a real unique opportunity to be able to develop really good people and, and those that can cope with success and failure, adversity, 
um, and thrive and learn as a result of it. So, so there, there needs to be a focus on that um, and connecting and building a relationship with each individual in order to do that, um, as well as as the part of the teaching of, of the game. With respect to impacting the player, obviously the coach is certainly, if not the most important variable, one of, but the other one is the environment in which they're training and playing. And the impact on that, that is most probably strong is the culture. And you also talk a lot about taking culture from words on a wall into daily behaviors, which I think is probably something that 99% of people who talk about culture need some help in. You know, I'll put myself in that category as well of, of how do you take values that you espouse or things you believe in culturally and make them real and tangible within an environment? And the main reason for that is because what we know is we need consistency in terms of that approach. Essentially, I think everyone gets fascinated by the word culture and it's like it's almost become a buzzword around sport now. But when you take it back to what it is in its purest sense, it's just the way we do things around here. That's it. It's the way people behave. And hopefully though those that we know that are effective over a longer period of time, it's how they behave consistently over time. And that's why understanding what the behavior is that links to the value and represents the value and actualizes the value becomes really important because some of the, the kind of challenges with it are kind of uh, misinterpretation, misconception, or just a difference in terms of perspective of how you see a certain word and what that word might mean to you. So where the danger lies with just having five or six words that are on the wall is that if you've got a roster of 25 players, as an example, you may get 25 variations of what that word means to them uh, based upon, again, their background, their education and, and what they understand, but also their lived experiences. And as a result of that, it's important for us to, to kind of define what it means and what it looks like. Because ultimately, where anything we do in the coaching of young players is what does it look like in the end? So again, we come back to the philosophy. The easiest thing is what does it look like on the pitch? The hardest thing is how do we get there and how do we build up these kind of concepts and behaviors over a period of time? And for me, culture is the same thing. What, what do people see when they come into an environment and what do they feel? What do they hear that tells you that there's a, a lived culture by everyone at the club? And that's the reason why we need to get real clarity on what does it mean for every one person? What's the definition of the value and what behaviors are the best for representing that value and, and in some ways articulating it through through the behaviors that you see day to day? Um, and that's, that's something that's a real focus for us, particularly when we know that youth sport is a long game. Um, so we need to be able to continually do this season by season by season to really have the impact uh, and the desired impact on players. And people. Harry, what are some stop signs or dead ends on creating a positive culture that you've identified in all of your wonderful work? The first one I, I would say is that they just become words on the wall that look pretty for people to say we have a culture. I think the other is it's very difficult to manufacture a culture. I think it's something that needs to be organically grown when, when it's at its best, um, which means that sometimes you know, that's going to take time. It's not just... Uh, I think one of the failures is that you have a meeting about culture and then you think, right, that's it, we're done. We've got a culture at the club, but actually it's then about what you do next is the most important bit. And what what are you going to allow? Um, what are you going to accept? And how consistent are you going to be in good times and bad? Because quite easy when when it's good, we get comfortable and we allow 
certain behaviors that we wouldn't otherwise allow based upon what we want to see. And obviously then it becomes even more difficult. The more you allow, the further you've got to rein it back in at, at periods of time when maybe uh, you feel as if that's necessary. So I just think being as consistent as possible is probably the most difficult thing. But a lot of the time it comes from misconception or a kind of a misunderstanding of what culture actually is when it's at its best. Yeah, when you say that, Carrie, the importance of reinforcement and repetition jumps to mind. And I read once that the average human reads or hears 2.3 million words every three months. And when you think about that and you think about people saying something once or twice and how quickly that just turns into noise out in the environment and the message just disappears. So the importance, number one, of of intentionality, which I hear all the way through everything you're talking about, is intentional thought to intentional action over and over. The quote, I think, from Emerson, which is, who you are is speaking so loudly, I can't hear what you're saying. And I think that's a big piece of, of culture as well, because the words on the wall If they don't match the actions, especially of the leadership, you end up with a huge disconnect. For sure. And and, your actions will always speak louder. They say actions speak louder than words. They always will. So the consistency between what you show and what you say is also really important in good and bad, just just general day to day. And also the reason why we, we kind of work on the philosophy and the methodology to get some real common language throughout, that that becomes really key so that they hear consistent words, consistent phrases, consistent concepts that have meaning. And every experience on on the pitch, whether that be in training or in games, is a new experience or version of the framework. So there's a level of consistency because, as you say, then you, you actually have some focus, some intentionality and some purpose in terms of what you're working to. And every experience just gets attached to each of the concepts and each of the frameworks, which then means that over a period of 10 weeks, you get 10 or 12 examples of what that might look like, which gives you even more clarity because what we know about learning and performance is to learn. We need to be able to consistently do the same thing in very different environments. And that's what those number of weeks of trainings and games allow us to do if we bring it back to something that makes sense um, and that people understand. Kerry, I'm not nearly as well read as you or Mr. Lavers, and I bring the IQ down in this uh triangle here way low but uh, one book that i have enjoyed is malcolm gladwell's tipping point when you are assessing kind of the tipping point to know that they have bought into the culture what are some of those tipping points that you're looking for it's a good question and i used to get asked this a lot around when do you know when it's time to change something in an environment whether that's a coach or players or, or anything else when you know it's getting stale i think the biggest the biggest indicator for me is energy because energy gives you a um, an idea of commitment to the cause um, and how on board everyone are and how aligned people are and how collaborative and, and how well they work together. That gives you a real indication, I think. So if there's real energy and enthusiasm in the environment, then I think you're, you're generally in a good place. And what will happen over a period of time is that you'll achieve success because you get the buy-in and the engagement from, uh, from as, as many people as are, are present in that environment and and those that are not then you you know the old phrase goes that you change the people or you change the people right and at some point that that does become the case but i always try to give people the opportunity to buy into something as a new way of doing to engage them right at the beginning so that they become part of it so again it comes back to that collaborative approach uh, but then yeah the energy energy tells you everything i think when you walk out to a session when you walk into a club for the first time 
that will tell you everything that you need to know about where the club is at. Is uh, what does the energy feel like? Yeah, I think you can almost feel it before anything else. That is a great tipping point. We are two segments in. We'll have one more segment as Kristen Labors, the longtime president and CEO and one of the original founders of the ECNL, is here with Kerry Boley, the technical advisor, almost one year into the job and doing some great work on multiple topics. When we return, our final segment will be around creating learning environments. It'll be good. Let's take a break and be back with more on Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. The ECNL is pleased to announce Quick Goal as the official goal provider and partner for ECNL Girls and ECNL Boys, a new partnership created to support the growth and development of the country's top players, clubs, and coaches. At all national events, including national playoffs and national finals, the Quick Goal Coaches Corner will provide hospitality and social space for ECNL girls, ECNL boys, and collegiate coaches. Quick Goal will also be the presenting sponsor of the National championship winning ECNL girls and ECNL boys coaches of the year and the ECNL girls and ECNL boys goals of the year. Quick Goal looks forward to helping the ECNL continue to elevate the standards of youth soccer and provide more opportunities to players on and off the field in the coming years. From athletes just starting to turn heads to some of the best athletes to ever play their games, Gatorade shows that they are the proven fuel of the best. For the athletes who give everything, nothing beats Gatorade, the studied, tested, and proven fuel of the ECNL. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Christian Labors with Carrie Boley. Back to you, Christian. When we talk about creating a learning environment, and I'm going to connect this to culture now, because to me, and I do think this is a cultural issue that we have to address directly here, it's hard to create a learning environment with players when you don't have a learning environment with staff. And so what is your perspective? You've worked with some of the top youth coaches, relationships with top pro coaches. What is your perspective on learning as a habit of top coaches across the world? The best coaches in the world, from my experience, lifelong learners. And they are constantly looking for new ways to evolve their practice. And, you know, I always come back to... John Wooden's quote, it's what you learn after you know it all that counts. And I really do believe in that. You know, the coaches that I've been fortunate to have relationships with, to see work and to be a part of their journey in, in some ways, then they've always had that. It's always been around the search to be better. And it always starts with the search to be better in myself. And it starts with me as as the leader or the coach in that environment rather than how do I help my players get better? It's always the start point is how do I get better in order to help my players get better? And there's, there's only a slight difference in what I just said there, but the shift in the focus and the mindset is everything in terms of where their, where their start point is. So I always say that's, that's the first thing. Lifelong learners look for them for improvements in themselves and their own behaviors and their own coaching practice before we get to uh, what we need to do with the players. So what is it that you think, and, and I don't know if, if it's different in different places, but there's a lot of people I think that are either afraid to admit they don't know or potentially have some insecurity. How do you get people over that bridge of, of saying, there's something here that can make me better? And I was told at one point as a young attorney in my life that if you go to a seminar and you take away one or two ideas, that's been a good day and that you don't need to come out somewhere and feel like you're going to learn a thousand new things. How do you get somebody 
who might be reluctant to put themselves into an environment where they are going to learn from somebody or to challenge maybe some of their status quo? How do you get them across that bridge? The start point is always the relationship that you built with each of them. And I think that, that, again, I come back to the kind of purpose around it, but it does have to be purposeful and it has to be about more than the coach for me, more than about who they are as a professional. And you've got to go in search of the personal relationship to build genuine trust um, and not go too quick, too soon around, we need to improve this behavior, this behavior, let's try and change this coaching practice. First of all, get to know who they are, what they believe in, what they truly believe in um, as people, what's important to them. And then you start to understand a little bit around their motivations and also some of their challenges. From that position of, of what they believe in, you can then start to compare the two in terms of the coaching practice and how it comes across in terms of the behaviors, how closely aligned is what you see here to what you believe in as a coach. And I think once you start to do that, you will already open up the kind of open their mind a little bit and to the, the kind of uh, prospect of learning, to be open, receptive to new ideas of doing but you actually change the focus because the focus becomes about them reflecting and guiding them through a reflective approach for them going in search of some of the answers themselves. Once you get them in that position, then I think you've got a real chance to influence and affect people. But it's got to be with a the first step has to be a genuine interest in the person and a genuine interest to help them and not just try to modify behaviors because I think that can be some of the dangers of coach development. We have a model in our mind of what we want to see. If you don't model that practice, then it's wrong. It comes back to the first thing we talked about with coach philosophy. Original ideas, authentic coaches, allow them to be them. Build relationships to understand what them or what that person looks like. And then as a result of that, try to find the, the first way to be able to help them to be better. So essentially, that's what we're trying to do in coach development is just help people be better. It's not saying that someone's right, wrong, better, worse. So by just trying to help everyone shift the dial a little bit and be 1% better than what they were yesterday. As we think about coach development and specifically in this segment, creating a good learning environment, let's say you get to the point where you've got 90 to 95% buy-in and that energy that you talked about earlier is there, but that 5% is still hanging there. What do you do with that 5%? Right. I think I would say you have three types of groups of people. You have those that dive in, full in, straight away, um, fully immersed, fully engaged in everything that you do. You get those that are kind of curious, but a little bit skeptical. And then you get some that want to run the other way. The hope is over a period of time that the curious and skeptical become all in. And then you're left with a smaller group, which is which is a little bit, as, as you explained it there, the 5%. And then I think what what naturally starts to happen for those minority is that they look across at what the other looks like and they have a decision to make. Either they're going to be in or they're going to stand out from the crowd for the, for the wrong reasons in many ways. And you have a saying that you can take the horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And I kind of use that a little bit. Of course, we have a duty of care. If there's a 5% that don't fully engage, but they're at our club, of course, we have to help them or try our best to help them to learn and become better people, better players. Um, but essentially, they'll, they'll fall away um, themselves, I think, in that way. And then you make some of the stuff that the others are doing a little bit more of a privilege. Because when they feel as if it's more of a privilege, then people get more curious about what is it that they're doing that I'm not. And, and naturally, over a period of time, I think you'll get more, more often than not, you'll get people that want to be a part of it. And if they don't, then maybe it's, it's 
not the right environment for them, and that's fine as well. But let them realize that because I think they will over a period of time. I think they realize that this isn't the place for me. So one of the things that you did when you were at City is interview and identify coaches for potential jobs. So I'm going to ask two parts to the question. One is, how did you do that? What did you look for in talking to them? And then two, maybe specifically within that, how did you try to determine whether this person was a lifelong learner or whether this person was really good at interviewing and talking the talk, but actions didn't necessarily match that? I'll go with one, then two, and then link the two together, I think, in terms of the way I respond to it. So the first bit is that I think you, you link it to what I said around how you engage people. Having a genuine interest to understand who they are, um, and that's before there's any any role available. So it was literally get to know the person that sits behind the coach, take a real genuine interest in um, who they are as people and coaches, and that that's in various forms. So you know, calls like this sometimes go meet people in person if they're out of work, because for me, in person is always the best rather than over Zoom when when you're meeting people and discussing with people. So I think that that becomes really important. And then, of course, there are many things that we need to consider, who they are personally, who they are professionally, but also what is they, what's their beliefs around the game? What does their game style look like? That become really important. We had data measures because, of, particularly with all the first-team coaches, the pros, data measures of what their game looked like and, and, and that. And those whole approaches all come together. And essentially, you build up a bigger kind of understanding of, of who they are and, and what they believe in. And, and then it's linked to, we had a very specific coach profile of what a city coach was for us across five key areas. The person, the relationship they develop with players, culture, uh, the learning environment they create, and the game, the game being the, the philosophy methodology. In linking the two together, to get the genuine person, it, it's kind of when there's no job available because the most dangerous time is when there's a job available that they can modify their behavior towards what the job is. So if you do it through the surveillance, as, as, as we used to call it, then you get a better sense of who they are because you're just genuinely building a relationship over a period of time around the game. So you, you talk around the game, not necessarily around specific games, but just any game that, like if it was a game last night, we talk about that. And then you get a real sense of what is it that they believe in from the game? How do they see the game? What things are they engaged in? And then another indicator is how much did they reach out um, as opposed to me always reaching out? Because when they reach out, you know, there's a genuine interest. And the questions that they ask gives you an idea of how committed they are to learning and how receptive they are to, to the ways of doing. So I think they come across when you speak to people enough times and meet them enough times and you build relationship over a period of time, you get to know them much better. So by the time we come around to the recruitment, I already had a real sense of who this person was and how I would work with them. And if they weren't someone that we could work with at the group, that we didn't recruit them. It was simple as that because it was far more important for us to miss out on one and get the next ones right than it was to get that one that was at a very good record but didn't fit the group because over a period of time, that would be more detrimental to us as a, as a, a group of clubs or even an individual club than it would to miss out on one that was a very good coach but wasn't for us and at some point you have to be okay that not every coach is going to be the right one for the environment for what you believe in and it doesn't mean that they're wrong and we're right it just means that they're different and if they're not if they're not what we're looking for or we're not what they're looking for then sometimes you have to be okay with that and not try and win everyone a lot of what you talk about is about transfer it's transfer culture from walls to actions learning by itself requires transfer so 
maybe talk a little bit about the transfer of, of the coach and the session into impacting players on the field on game day and some of the principles between training environment and the match environment, because ultimately, you know, I don't want get people to get the sense that this workshop we do is all big philosophy and big picture stuff like that. It gets down into some of the more nitty gritty, for lack of a better word. The key things for me is how closely aligned is your practice to what the game looks like? That becomes really important because essentially we're trying to develop players that can play the game. So if we do things in practice that don't look like the game, then what are we actually helping them or teaching them to do? Um, so that, that becomes one of our start points around how we help them. Consistency of language, consistency of, of how we utilize a methodology framework is another. Um, so ensuring that, you know, what, what, pictures we create in training are those that they're going to experience in games for one um, the way that we coach our approach to it is as similar as it can be now of course on game day you can't go and step into a session and you can't go and stand on the pitch and see it from multiple views which is a bit different but model certain parts of your training session to replicate a game because it helps you as a coach as much as it does the players that you're seeing it from the view that you're going to see it on game day so you're actually uh you're training yourself in terms of the art of noticing as well to see it from the angle that you're going to need to see it on game day. I think that's important. But trying to keep as much of a consistency between the two as possible, obviously knowing that emotions are different on usually from training to game, naturally. The environment can be very different, particularly around events and games where there's quite a few people watching and, and anything else. So, so appreciating that, but trying to keep your processes as consistent as possible so that you don't get too high when you win, not too too low when you lose. After a defeat, it doesn't become a 15-minute team talk after the game, and when you win, no team talk. Keep something that, that's a level of familiarity for them, because, again, what we know about stages of adversity is that once you've planned well for them, planning is one of the key coping mechanisms for developing resilience. So as a result of it, let, let's try to integrate as much of that as we can in our practice. So I think that... They're some of the key things for me that you ensure that you have a level of consistency, you have a level of clarity that can easily be transferred from one to the other. I appreciate that. And this was a very short and small segment of the topics and the depth of the discussion that occurs over the two days of the methodology workshops that we've done. And we're excited to have another one coming in St. Louis, December 6th and 7th. And information for sign up for that workshop will come out here in the next week. We try and keep these workshops relatively small so that there's an opportunity for collaborative discussion and back and forth. But we appreciate you being willing to come back across the pond for the third time this year to talk with our coaches and to help our league get better. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to work with you as always. I look forward to the future workshops. Well done. Thank you, Kerry. And thank you, Christian. And I want to thank Andrea Wheeler and all the great people at the ECNL. Also need to thank my producer, Colin Thrash, for each and every one of them and all of you. I'm Dean Linky. We'll see you in two weeks for another edition of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.theecnl.com. And if you have a suggestion for the show or a great idea for a guest, please email us at info at theecnl.com. Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast is an ECNL production. ECNL, more than a league.